Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a warm welcome to Tuesday Hometime with Jane Bartlett. On the program today, Guantanamo Bay Torture Centre and continuing efforts to close it with Herb Geraghty from Witness Against Torture. Dr Alison Bronowski looks at shaky orcas, leads hand and moves to expand the Linus radioactive processing plant in Malaysia. Nick McFallon and issues affecting the people in Pacific Island nations. And Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, part two of interview about his two months in Cuba. So stay tuned until six. In what unfortunately has become an annual event, activists from Witness Against Torture and the National Religious Campaign Witness Against Torture hold a closed Guantanamo vigil outside the White House, marking the 21st anniversary of the extrajudicial prison's opening at the US naval base at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. I spoke with the organiser of this year's protest, Herb Geraghty, and asked him what happens on January the 11th. On January 11th every year, I work with a group called Witness Against Torture and a coalition of a whole bunch of other groups to commemorate the anniversary of the opening of Guantanamo Bay, the detention centre, in the context of the war on terror. We hold events all throughout the week in D.C., talking to legislators and doing public protests and educational campaigns and other events, all culminating on the 11th, where we host a a big rally right in front of the White House to try to call attention to the men still detained there. When you speak to legislators and others in high places, what's the message they give you? I think for years now, we've had... Democratic presidents in office who've campaigned on closing Guantanamo. Um, however, they make that promise in their campaign and then they say, well, all of this, you know, bureaucratic red tape that prevents us from actually closing the prison. Um, and I think a lot of legislators rely on that talking point too. But the reality is that all of that red tape that does exist was built by individuals. It was individual decisions that were made to make the prison seemingly a forever prison where people are just sent without charge, without trial, and to die in with no hope to ever get out. And I think that our message has been that there are steps that you can take. During the Obama administration, they did make substantial efforts to close the prison and to at least start releasing hundreds of the men who were just in there for for really no good reason. But he failed. At the end of his administration, there were still men languishing in the prison. And now we have another Democratic president who campaigned on closing the prison. And from our perspective, it does not seem like much is being done for the closure of Guantanamo and certainly not for justice for any of the survivors of Guantanamo. When you talk about justice, this is an extrajudicial charges against these men. 
It wouldn't happen in the United States, but it's happening on an island and no one has any access to that prison. Yes, exactly. And that is, it, it was built for that exact purpose. I think for a lot of Americans, we've been told that Guantanamo is necessary within the war on terror and that these are the worst of the worst. But the reality is that many hundreds of these people who were detained there, all Muslim men and boys, children, were just caught up in being in the wrong place at the wrong time, in the wrong country where they practiced the wrong religion and had the wrong skin color. And I think that it's possible and likely that some of the people who have been detained in Guantanamo and who are still there were involved in things like planning the 9-11 attacks. And that was a horrific injustice and act of violence against innocent Americans. And I think that those innocent Americans are never going to have any semblance of justice because so many of the um, of the the ways that we've tried to go about that included things like extrajudicial torture and keeping people without any sort of human rights protections. We're never going to have real fair trials for those who are involved in planning 9/11, and I think that. So many men have been have been tortured and have mis- been mistreated in order to potentially get justice for those attacks or for other acts of terrorism, and it's just been completely counterproductive. There will be no justice for the Americans who died in 9-11 or from other terrorist attacks because of the way that our government has chosen to completely disregard the rule of law and human rights for the people who they have accused of being involved in those types of attacks. Well, what does international law say about this facility at Guantanamo Bay? My understanding is that the United States basically just does not play along with the rest of the international community when it comes to war crimes and really respecting the rule of law and human rights. CIA has been involved in black sites. Many of the men who are now in Guantanamo were first tortured overseas in U.S.-sponsored torture campaigns and CIA black sites. There's no justice for the innocent men who were subject to that, or even the guilty men. And so I think that Guantanamo is a symbol of xenophobia, of Islamophobia within the war on terror, and it's a symbol that we do not participate with the international community when it comes to finding justice for criminal acts and terrorism. Well, let's look at those men. Over 700 men were detained and many still detained. I mean, not many, but there's 35 still. Are they still being tortured? Depending on your definition, I think I would consider for some of these men who are still being held indefinitely without charge and without trial – That itself, this indefinite forever prisoner status, is a form of torture, not to mention those solitary confinement and all of these other uh, things that they've been subjected to. We also know that early in the prison's existence, they were subjected to actual physical torture as well as just extreme um, religious abuse. Uh, There was burning of the Korans and showing them sexually explicit uh, videos and, and imagery of women. Um, that were extremely, you know, far out of the the realm of what many of these men had experienced and were really deeply in contrast with their deeply held religious beliefs. James Yee, a former uh, Muslim chaplain within the U.S. military who worked at Guantanamo, has done a lot of work 
to expose some of the abuses, particularly in the context of religious discrimination and abuse. But ultimately, I don't exactly know what's going on in the prison. The only people who are allowed in attorneys for the men, and even they are not really allowed to speak out about exactly what's going on in there. I don't think that they have the full picture of what's going on in there. It has been notoriously impossible or difficult for outside media to get in, um, and certainly for human rights groups to come and examine the, the status of the prisoners. So I can't tell you exactly what is happening in Guantanamo on the day-to-day, but I do know that it is costing me as a taxpayer millions and millions of dollars and that there is no just reason to continue the prison in its capacity that it exists now. How many of the now-released prisoners have you been able to contact? A few. Um, I've been grateful to get to hear from um, several of the men, particularly Mansour Adafi, who we've got to partner with with our work with within Witness Against Torture and a few other men who have uh, written books and who have um, spoken out on this issue. And I personally am grateful for them because I think that as Americans, as U.S. citizens, we can really only do so much to try to rehumanize these men in the minds of the American people and in the minds of our government. Um, and I think that for the, the men who have been released, many of them who have gone on to speak out against this injustice, um, being able to point to their stories and give them a platform um, has been instrumental in, again, rehumanizing the plight of these Muslim men and boys in the minds of the American people. When you say boys, what's the youngest that's been at Guantanamo? Um, I believe 15 years old was the youngest. Um, person who was in Guantanamo. Which is totally against any international law. Oh, well, the whole place really is against international law. Exactly. I mean, when, it, and I think that from my point of view, it, it really is a testament to the xenophobia and Islamophobia within the war on terror. Within other conflicts within the entire world, when you find child soldiers or people who you're accusing of having been, you know, a, a 15-year-old who may have been involved in some sort of terror apparatus, which was not the case in, the, in at least the one I was thinking, but we as an international community look towards rehabilitation for people who are caught up in this sort of horrific conflict and violence. Uh, but if you are a Muslim teenager within a particular country, within a particular time period, you can get shipped off to Guantanamo Bay where you have no human rights protections and no respect or humanity is afforded to you because of circumstances completely outside of your control. If they open the door to one of these prisoners, what happens to them then? My hope is that for the majority of these men, they can find some sort of justice. And for many of them, I think they deserve reparations from our government um, but that's not what they're getting. What what we're seeing among many of the men who are eventually released or transferred is that some of these men who, again, were completely innocent, um, but were swept up in this craze to imprison and detain as many people who could potentially have been responsible for some distant form of terrorism without any evidence or really any anything to connect them to these acts of violence, 
But because they were Guantanamo detainees, they're stuck with that designation for the rest of their life. Some of these men have been shipped to countries that they never lived in, where they don't speak the language. Some of them are just sent there with no help for you know, restarting their life or being reconnected to their families who they've been separated from. Um, others have been transferred to prisons in, in other countries where they may or may not speak the language or have any connections to. And they're just in a, another form of Guantanamo in some foreign prison that is not respecting their human rights not even potentially giving them a trial for crimes that they may or may not have been involved in. And so I think that right now we're so far off from any semblance of justice for any of these men that the first step is just to close Guantanamo, to stop allowing any transfers into the prison at the very least, to work to transfer and release the men who have been cleared for transfer uh, by all all relevant agencies, but again, this bureaucratic red tape is keeping them inside this hellhole. And I think that um, I'm very hopeful that we will close Guantanamo, but I think that we're going to need a lot more support from the international community, the media, and every, everyday Americans to put this issue back on the top of their of their national concerns, because this is a national embarrassment. It is horrific that we are doing this to Muslim men, and we should, as Americans, want to stand up for these values that we've proclaimed of human rights and the rule of law, which Guantanamo just completely spits in the face of. Well, there are a lot of organizations who support what you're doing and work with you, but is the media a problem? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think that it's disturbing to me that abuses at Guantanamo continue and maybe once a year on this anniversary when we hold our event in D.C., it gets a line of a mention somewhere. But ultimately, at least, you know, the mainstream media, I never, in in the U.S. at least, I never hear about abuses at Guantanamo. I, I host a conference every year with my organization, Rehumanize International, and at the Rehumanized Conference, people attend, and these are justice-minded people. And when we talk about Guantanamo, every single year, someone says to me, I thought that closed. I thought Obama campaigned and closed, uh, closed Guantanamo. Um, and so this is something that people are just not thinking about. And I think that the 35 Muslim men still detained have been completely erased from the narrative of the war on terror. We like to pretend like uh, these issues are, are over. Um, but they're not. They're still they're still going on. There's still people who um, are at risk of torture and abuse and who are being indefinitely detained. People who are concerned about justice at all need to also share concern for these Muslim men. Well, Biden is another president who vowed to close Guantanamo. What's he saying in 2023? Really, he's not saying much. Uh, it's only when activists are confronting the administration asking for something to be done uh, that we that we hear much about it and the answer is that not much has happened there's been some movement to work to get the cleared for release status for more of the detainees but as i mentioned there are men in there right now who have been cleared by all reputable agencies uh, you know every every relevant list saying cleared for release cleared for transfer, these men do not need to be in Guantanamo, 
yet they still remain there. Um, and I believe that that's because there's a lack of political will from the Biden administration to take real substantive action to transfer and release these men and finally close the prison. I can't tell you exactly why he lacks that will. Um, I'm hopeful that he gains it back, that the rhetoric that him and um, Barack Obama used when they were originally running for president and vice president about the horrors of Guantanamo, I hope they really believed that, and I hope that they will actually work to close the prison before his term is over. But ultimately, I have not seen much action from the Biden administration, and I'm deeply concerned that this is not at the top of his priorities when I really deeply believe that it must be. And it's, in one sense, a stain on Cuba, the fact that this is happening in their country. Yeah, I mean, I I think that the Cuban government is not very happy with the current situation in Guantanamo. And I think that that is just one other form of injustice heaped upon injustice that the United States believes that we can do whatever we want in whatever country we want with whosoever citizens we want in order to achieve our military and economic and strategic goals around the world. As Americans like myself and the others who I organize with around this issue we are not comfortable with that. We do not want America to feel as though they, we as a country, as a military, as whatever, has a right to just trample human rights, trample other countries' you know, national sovereignty to get what we want, especially when what we want, this torture, indefinite detention at Guantanamo, I don't feel is serving my interests or the interests of my neighbors who are struggling to access healthcare and who are you know, facing extreme injustice within the United States itself, I don't feel as though Guantanamo is advancing my interests or the interests of my neighbors. And it's certainly not advancing the interests of my Muslim brothers who are incarcerated there and detained. You must speak to people from other countries about this issue. Where do they put it, the U.S.? Yeah, I think when we have our annual events in Washington, D.C. to bring attention to this issue, Washington, D.C. is just such a hub of people from all over the world, uh, both tourists and people working there. Um, And we find that it's often people who are not American citizens, regardless of where they're from, that they're a little bit more engaged on this issue, that they're not the people saying, oh, I thought that Guantanamo was closed especially when we just happen to run into people who are originally from countries like Afghanistan or Iraq or where we have Muslim-majority countries. They understand the violence and the dehumanization that the United States government has perpetuated within their countries, and they see Guantanamo as a natural extension of that. They don't see it as a place where justice is being done for the worst of the worst. They recognize that this is yet another form of U.S. state-sponsored violence. And I I often find that especially people with backgrounds who are much different than my own have a connection to this issue that they feel more passionate about than it's it's sort of easy to get Americans to care about. Um, But we're going to continue talking to all different types of people. And I do think that as we bring bring this issue to the attention of more people, I see more people get passionate and get activated in terms of talking to their legislators and calling on the Biden administration to do real action to close Guantanamo. 
Um, but I think it's very difficult right now in the United States to get people to care about these men. Well, finally, Herb, I mentioned the media before. Washington Post, democracy dies in darkness. Explain that. That's their tagline, right? The Washington Post, democracy dies in darkness. I think that these past few weeks while we've been talking about this issue more, it's really made us realize how little the mainstream media seems to care about this issue. I never see the issue of Guantanamo or the abuses there or any of these things that we care deeply about being represented other than maybe once a year, maybe they'll mention it's the anniversary. This year, I don't even think the Washington Post did that. I think that the mainstream media in this country has completely abandoned the issue of Guantanamo um, and abandoned the men and boys who were so harmed in the course of its existence within the war on terror. What happened when you went there? Yeah, a few of us went outside the Washington Post to demonstrate and to to ask them, why aren't you covering this? Are these men not important? You know, you covered this back in 2002 and 2003 and back when people seemed to care. And I, I think that for a lot of people, they, they just feel so separated from this issue that it's not popular. It's not cool. It's not, you know, number one list of social justice causes or human rights causes for a lot of Americans. And so the media has backed off from holding the U.S. government accountable. And I think that the Washington Post, among others, including the New York Times and the L.A. Times and, and many of these organizations that I would hope would exist to hold the U.S. military and the U.S. government accountable as civil organizations, I feel as though they've abandoned these issues. And so when we when some of our people were outside of the Washington Post demonstrating, begging for them to cover this topic again um, and to invite others to care about it in the way that we do so that we can mobilize people to contact the Biden administration and their legislators to put an end to this injustice, the Washington Post just said, please, please leave. No, you can't come in here. No, we're not interested in speaking to you. And I believe they didn't cover the protest at all or, or anything to do with Guantanamo. That was disappointing, but not necessarily surprising based on the, the current climate that we, that we live in. And where's the best place for people to keep in touch with you? Yeah, just go on uh, witnessagainsttorture.com. That's where all of the, the events and info can be found. You can also just follow me on at Herb Garrity on Twitter and Instagram. Um, but definitely check out Witness Against Torture and all of the other organizations that we've partnered with. Uh, in order to, to make these events possible to keep a spotlight on this issue as much as we can. Peru's indigenous president has been overthrown. Support the uprising to protect land and water and fight for a new Peru. Come to our fundraiser, Peruvian food, music and culture, featuring Melbourne's own Amazonian cumbia band, Chicha Yeye, Lockdown Studios, 329 Johnson Street, Abbotsford, Saturday 4th of February at 8pm. Find us on Facebook. Search Latin Revolution Peru. El momento es ahora. A3CR Soporta. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 Thank you, 3CR. We love you.
Australia's optimal pathword on AUKUS. Just in time, the fundamental facts on AUKUS are being exposed in Canberra and Washington. That's the title of a contribution to Pearls and Irritations from Dr. Alison Bronowski, President of Australia's for War Powers Reform. Who's exposed them and what did they have to say? Well, what happened just in recent weeks was a couple of US congressmen, one who has just actually on the, was on the brink of retirement and has now retired, uh, one Republican and one Democrat, said the United States shouldn't be involved in selling nuclear-powered submarines to Australia because they couldn't uh, meet their own demands, the demands of the United States for these, because they've got a huge production line. It only exists in two parts, two places in the United States, and their orders are absolutely full up, and they can't provide for their own needs, let alone sign a deal saying that they'll sell eight of these to Australia in 20 years' time, by 2040. It seemed to people like me that this was at last the truth coming out and at last people in Australia started to feel that it was possible to raise doubts about this thing. And up to now we haven't been able to because of the simple reason that the government has given us no detail, neither the previous government nor the present one has given us any details about this thing. So once we heard this from the United States, a whole lot of people started to feel emboldened to be more critical of what this is all about. But the question of why we need them to deter China, for goodness sake, when we have to wait for 20 years for China to be deterred, during which time China would have heaps more submarines of its own, and why eight in Australia's hands, of which perhaps three might be functional at any one time, could make any difference to deterring China is complete nonsense. A lot of people have now felt that it's not being subversive to point this out and to ask government what in the world they are thinking about. I've just seen a very good article by a former colleague of mine called David Livingston in the Sydney Morning Herald today and in the Brisbane Times. It might be in the age. Uh, I haven't seen that. In which he points out the, the nonsense that all of this represents, plus the enormous cost, plus the damage potentially to the Australia's debt levels and the fact that it will hold us back doing much more useful things in health, education and infrastructure that would benefit Australia and make Australia a more secure country, much more secure than worrying about China. And I was delighted to see his article because I completely agree with it. Well, you're saying that it stirred people up in Australia to start making comments. Are you aware that it has made a ripple in the United States as well? I actually sent reports on that to my colleagues in the United States. There's an organization there on whose board I sit and we talk about all sorts of stuff. I had the impression that it didn't make a lot of ripples in the United States. Of course, the people I was corresponding with agree with that already. So it wasn't news for them. But I don't think AUKUS itself is a big topic 
in the United States. So these two congressmen's uh, opinion sort of figured for a day or two and then was countermanded, if you like, by statements out of the Pentagon saying that, you know, all of this uh, could be done and it shouldn't be uh, a concern and, uh, you know, the United States could manage all of this and nobody should worry. So people who weren't following it closely might well have forgotten it by now. Nuclear power is no big deal in the United States. Uh, Their energy infrastructure depends upon it to a large extent. The only controversy about that is what they do with their undisposable waste. But as far as nuclear-powered submarines are concerned, the Americans are more worried about nuclear arms than nuclear power. They've got a huge investment in nuclear weapons that not only go on submarines, but get go on planes, and they uh, can, can do a hell of a lot more damage than a, nuclear sub, a nuclear-powered submarine without nuclear weapons. You've talked about the subs. This is AUKUS. It's a lot bigger than subs, isn't it? Much bigger. And that's what actually concerns me because personally, I think and hope that the submarine deal never goes through and that we don't go on spending money on it and we forget about it because it's so irrational and so far away. But what the AUKUS deal really enables, even if it doesn't enable nuclear-powered submarines, to be delivered in Australia. What it does enable is an enormous expansion of US military presence in Australia, either to maintain and service and crew uh, the submarines themselves, but also to become permanent in bases in northern Australia. And that is what the government is signing up for under the cloak of saying this is all to enable AUKUS. These people are necessary on Australian territory permanently and with no sovereignty asserted by Australia over their activities at all. And they will be able, as the Marines in Darwin already are, to more or less do what they damn well like, come and go as they wish, and target offensive action from Australian territory against any country they wish without control from Australia. So that's why I say our sovereignty is is in dire peril as a result of this thing. And as we've seen from Japan over the years, if these American soldiers are charged with serious offences, they don't get tried in Australia, do they? They have a thing called SOFA, which is the Status of Forces Agreement. They have one in Japan as well, but it's ignored in practice. Because when an American gets charged with, say, rape or murder off base, uh, and they often are, they just get spirited out of the country quick as a flash. And the opportunity to prosecute them or sentence them in the United States is usually ignored. While the United States is very anxious to get its hands on Julian Assange out of London and extradite from there, we would have very little chance of doing anything similar. While the United States could and would take any Marines they wanted out of Australia at will. And I understand from friends in Darwin that this has happened, that there have been crimes, uh, uh, car crashes, for instance, rape, 
uh, assault and so on involving the Marines and no justice uh, has ever been served in an Australian court. Is the increasing purchase of military hardware from the US part of AUKUS or is that aside from that? No, it's part of AUKUS um, or, or rather is announced in the same breath as AUKUS that, that not only are we signing up for military submarines but new missiles and other delivery systems which are all part of the same deal. So even if the submarine thing didn't go through, those would be stationed in Australia and that in turn would further justify the US forces that would be there to operate them. Because you see, one thing that they really hate is sharing any the, their secret technology with anybody at all. They might say they can trust their allies, but in fact, they're, they're very jealous of the secrecy of this sort of stuff and they'd rather have it in their own hands than anybody else's. And Australia, amazingly, up to now, has been quite comfortable about the idea of Americans and all their weapons and all their communication system, of course, that's another thing, that Pine Gap, etc., being based in Australia and run, commanded and supervised entirely by Americans. As I said before, it's a, a derogation of our sovereignty. I often wonder, Alison, how the debt is going to be paid for these machines, for this infrastructure. Just one item now seems to be in the billions of dollars. That's right. And they just think up a number and double it. And the, the prices that we are being quoted for the submarines alone at this time uh, are reportedly going to double before they are ever delivered. This is, of course, what the Pentagon can do, because once they've got us signed up for this thing, they can say, oh, well, we've got cost overruns, and, you know, you wouldn't want us to drop the whole deal, would you? And uh, it's now going to cost us more because of this, that, or the other problem that we've had. Plus, then, of course, on top of that, the servicing, the maintenance, the parts, having to take parts of them back to the United States at vast expense or bring people out here at further expense to do things for them. It, it is just unbelievable. Meanwhile, in our region, faced with presumably the same sorts of concerns, the Japanese are building their own submarines at a great rate and the Koreans are doing the same. Instead of that, instead of us doing this, we buy them off the shelf from the Americans and pay an absolute premium. While, as David Livingston, who I mentioned at the beginning, points out, we will be told that we can't afford health, education, welfare, infrastructure, all of things that go with a reasonable middle-sized economy. Well, that's already happening, and particularly in the United States, where so much yes. of their budget goes to the military and a lot of the spending on the military isn't even put into their budget, it's into other areas. That's right, it, it is. It's quoted separately from the, the main budget, and I don't know about the oversight of that in the United States, but in Australia, defence is just able to go to Senate estimates and say, well, you know, we, we can't even tell you what the numbers are, and they don't know some of the time, what figures they can talk about. It's because they never have any financial discipline 
imposed upon them at all. One of the ways the United States gets away with this, well, there are two ways. One is they very cleverly put bits and pieces of the defense industry, the military industrial complex, as Eisenhower called it, in every state of the United States so that there are people who would lose jobs if that industry went away. And so they vote for it time after time. And they have Congress people who support it time after time. And then that brings me to the second point, which is that Congress supports the budget for war and has to authorize it and does so. Not only does it authorize it year after year after year, but as that budget doubles and quadruples and is now $3 trillion, they go on even voluntarily raising it and offering more. It's just obscene when you think, as I, I think I've probably said to you before, we're trying to find ways to stop a thing like COVID killing people while we're busy, and they are busy finding more and more expensive ways of killing people. Reverting back to your article, you say that if the AUKUS deal fails, so could ANZUS. Can you explain? The whole purpose of AUKUS, as I've been suggesting, is to lock the United States into a military presence in Australia that governments hope will serve as either to defend Australia or as a deterrence against attack. If governments were to oppose AUKUS and say, look, it just isn't worth having on the grounds that we've been discussing today, then we would have to say to the United States, we object to the principle of Australian sovereignty being taken over by the US because the only thing ANZUS commits us to is to consult if there's a threat to us or to our allies in ANZUS. That's all, just to consult. Whereas what AUKUS does is it makes Australia a target and one which the United States might or might not decide to defend, but it would certainly defend its basis. And that's the whole reason for AUKUS, as I've suggested. And so ANZUS then becomes irrelevant because the first article of ANZUS quotes the UN Charter and says the parties will not threaten or use force. And AUKUS does exactly that. It is a threat for use of force against our region. And so AUKUS countermands ANZUS, and ANZUS would either have to be reviewed or abandoned, in my view. And I've been speaking with Dr. Alison Brodowski, who's the president of Australia's for War Powers Reform. Kofias are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kofias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kofia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. 
explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. We're your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufiyas.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Jeffrey, I'm Alphonse, I'm Erwin, and we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua, Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Focus once again on an issue first covered on this program up to 10 years ago now, Linus Rare Earths and its operation in Kwantan, Malaysia, as news now that intends to dramatically expand production of rare earths in Western Australia, which is then exported to Malaysia for processing. Environmental consultant and activist Lee Tan, whose family live and work in Kwantan, and like many others, face the dangers of that processing plans. Lee, before we begin looking at the proposed expansion, can you briefly explain for those who may not be aware of the the dangers of this venture in Malaysia, what it entails? Yeah, we're talking about Linus Rare Earth Company that operates a uh, secondary processing plant in Malaysia. Uh, Linus my the mineral, the rare earth mineral in Mount Weld in Western Australia near Laverton for Australian listeners. Uh, and then it enriched that mineral by the my site and then transported to the port of Fremantle some, what, six, seven hundred kilometers and then um, shipped in containers in bags to Malaysia to Kuantan, to the port of Kuantan in uh, Peninsula, Malaysia, where it processed the mine, the mineral ore into various different types of um, rare earth oxides. Now, rare earth is used in most modern digital products, you know, even our iPhone, laptop, uh, flat screen, TV, LED, etc., etc. All the low emission, low energy kind of uh, digital equipment, and also in um, petrol, you know, it, rare earth minerals has got, you know, different types of um, uh, functions and properties. It actually makes things smaller, more efficient uh, in its uh, function. And it, it and they able lots of functions which otherwise would not have been possible. So as a group of mineral, rare earth very useful uh, in modern you know lifestyle or in our society today. However, the mining and also the processing of this group of mineral involved 
huge amount of chemicals at very high temperature. And worst of all, attached with this group of minerals are often long-living, low-level radioactive materials, thorium and uranium especially. And rare earth minerals themselves are also hazardous to human health. Although research in this area is still in its infancy, um, it's very new and people are still finding out exactly what's wrong, you know, with um, or what, what the health effects are with uh, rare earth mineral. Yeah, so that's in short uh, the issues. What you're saying is that Australia is offloading its problems to a third world country. Absolutely. I mean, specifically, Lineless Rare Earth is doing that with the support of the Australian government. Although Kevin uh, Rudd, when he was the foreign minister back in 2012, actually wrote a letter stating that he would expect Linus Corporation to adhere uh, to the same high standard as required in in, in Australia for its operation in Malaysia. But the truth is far from that, unfortunately. Yeah, it is passing the hazards to Malaysia where environmental law enforcement is lacking and the government is, uh, is weak. And before Linus, the American company's been doing that, yeah, to China. And China's copped the toxic effect from rare earth mining and processing for decades. It has risen to be a very powerful, you know, controlling rare earth supply, a rare earth mineral uh, element supply in the world, but then, you know, sacrificing ordinary people, particularly in the remote region of um, Inner Mongolia. The herders and also some of the um, animals were also affected from uh, pollution and contamination. Can I refer you to a recent Sydney Morning Herald article titled Pinning Its Hopes on the Malaysian Government to Remove Restrictions on Its Operations? What restrictions? Okay, back in 2018, Malaysia had a historical change of government from the right-wing conservative UMNO-led or Barisan National National Front government that has controlled the country since uh, the late 50s, since its independence, actually. So first time in 60 years, Malaysia had a change of government led by a coalition of various slightly more progressive political parties. Unfortunately, it was um, uh, also uh, led by Mahathir Mohamad, a former controversial prime minister of Malaysia, who is very pro-industry. Nevertheless, there was a review carried out by the government, an executive review of, of Linus operations and waste management, and, and also then the Minister for Environment and Climate Change, Yobi Yin, from the Democratic Action Party, who was trained as a chemical engineer. She understood exactly the hazards associated with this kind of um, mineral processing. And, yeah, so she's imposed a condition 
onliners to have their waste removed or face closing. But unfortunately, Mahathir intervened, allowing liners to continue, although stipulating a new condition that from 2023, no ore-bearing radioactive materials could be used as a liner's feedstock for the quantum plant. Yeah, so that was the condition. But right now, Linus is trying to overturn that condition by allowing, you know, the leaching and cracking operations or, or processing to continue through its Malaysian plant. And that would mean that radioactive uh, material bearing, uh, rare earth uh, concentrate would be uh, will be continuing to enter Malaysia, leaving behind huge quantity of radioactive waste, as it had been doing, or it has been doing since 2013 in Malaysia. You say huge quantity. How has it been stored? Yeah, to date, Linus has generated over a million tons of uh, this radioactive materials and it's basically left in open dam subject to you know the monsoon deluges in Malaysia and that's what's causing some of the toxic materials to overflow to contaminate the the surrounding environment particularly the groundwater as um, we have seen evidence of in uh, through some of his uh, own monitoring data Um, reviewing some reports so far. And uh, these dams, you know, in Australia, the same type of waste uh, would have to adhere to a stricter low-level radioactive material uh, management uh, or waste management. Yeah, and contamination of the environment or groundwater would not be permissible. And also the same type of waste would need to be removed from site from its processing plant to its Malweld mine, where there is radioactive waste management plan. Is there a possibility yes. with a change of government in Australia that things could change and that mm. some of that material or all of that material would be required to be returned to Australia? Under the Western Australian uh, guidelines for this type of low-level so-called radioactive waste, it has to return to the mine pit eventually for disposal. You may know for radioactive materials, there is so-called a graded approach to its management. Even, you know, though some radioactive materials may be stored temporarily in mining dams and so on and so forth, they need to eventually, post-operation, be disposed under stricter conditions. For example, in um, Kakadu National Park, uh, the Ranger uranium mine that produced similar type of um, uh, tailings or, or contaminated waste, there is a requirement for this that waste in Kakadu that contains um, thorium and uranium to be stored in such a way that it will not contaminate the environment for at least a thousand years. Uh, and be managed and regulated for at least 10,000 years. I mean, those time frames are only set because, you know, they're kind of marginally humanly possible 
because the radioactivity of thorium and uranium in the millions or the half-life, you know, is in the billions of years. It's kind of like, you know, almost the time frame of the, the universe, which in short means that they're permanently radioactive and therefore could not be released into the environment. If it comes back to Australia, where would it yep. go? Yes. It will go back to Malwelt. I mean, Linus already has facility for this type of waste and also a, a waste management plan. It has got the logistics, you know, both internationally and also domestically in, in Malaysia and in, in Australia. So, you know, legally, there should not be any problem or, and practically there shouldn't be any problem in getting this waste back to, uh, it's my side. As, you know, uh, as required under Australian law anyway. Has the new Australian government made any comments on this? Not yet. I, I think, you know, it is something that Aid Watch and the Malaysian NGOs will be hoping to do in the near future. But bear in mind that this campaign, you know, is not funded in any way, especially at the Australian end. So we're doing it on a pro bono, voluntary basis. And we have our limitations, but we'll try to do what we can. Well, while you're talking about what's already there, Lines is talking mm. about a dramatic expansion. Absolutely, which is a problem because um, the waste, the radioactive waste issues has been a problem for, it, for the local environment and eventually it will affect the local people and wherever, you know, its waste ended up to contaminate the environment. I mentioned something earlier about hazards from rare earth minerals uh, themselves. Some of the rare earth elements been, you know, scientifically proven to affect the IQ of children if they're being exposed to it and fertility of men particularly. So these are very serious health issues and none of that are being managed in Malaysia in, in any practical ways. So, which is why, you know, the, the Malaysian groups are advocating for this waste to be returned so that it's not mismanaged indefinitely in Malaysia, where the plant, where Linus plant is situated in a very highly populated area that's growing, uh, in every aspect. Yeah, whereas Mal Weld in Western Australia is uh, isolated in a semi-arid area, of course. We need to also yeah, discuss with the traditional owner if there are any in the area yeah, and look at the environmental impact as well. But, you know, by and large, Australian groups has slightly greater capacity than the Malaysian groups and also even the, the government do deal with that. And we have to remember that there's a history in Malaysia of another mm. plant. Exactly. I mean, the Bukit Merah Asian Rare Earth plant, which was uh, most, mostly uh, invest, yeah, owned by the Japanese chemical giant Mitsubishi or industrial, industrial giant. You see, with Bukit Merah, uh, Linus has so far claimed that, uh, you know, uh, Linus' own radioactivity is much, much lower for the weight. That's because it's been diluting 
it with huge amount of other, you know, lime or calcium carbonate. The limeless waste would be very high in radioactivity. The problem with dilution is that it generates huge amount of the waste, which means the risk of um, exposure to the public will, you know, will be even higher. So I've done some rough estimate, and limeless waste is at least, you know, 60 times more than what Asian rare earth has generated uh, in the past. And of course, you know, even with the Bukit Mara case of uh, Asian rare earth uh, pollution, there have been people who died prematurely from leukemia and other kind of radioactivity, chemical kind of exposure related health problems. Children born with um, very severe birth defects. There's never been any epidemiological study There's never been real public disclosure or acknowledgement of the links between the hazards from Bukit Mara rare earth plant and some of these very serious health problems. And the same thing is happening at uh, Gebeng and Balog area where Linus is now situated. There's no disclosure of any monitoring data despite local groups asking for it for decades. You know, there's many problems when you have this kind of fairly complex pollution issue that require long-term monitoring and management and a great degree of transparency and uh, scientific, you know, fairly sophisticated scientific understanding of the various pollution pathway and nature of some of the, the chemicals and also the minerals uh, and the radioactive materials involved. And who's in charge of monitoring the site? Department of Environment is supposed to monitor them, but they kind of push anything to do with radiation to the Atomic Energy Licensing Board of Malaysia. I think they changed name now to call Nuclear Malaysia or something. In any case, monitoring radioactive uh, materials very highly expensive. Malaysia hasn't got that uh, resources to do it. And the Atomic Energy Licensing Board is pro-industry, pro-nuclear technology. It cannot be a, a regulator and also a licensing. You know, like there is a conflict of um, purpose. In Australia, we have a PANSA, we have um, Enstor, and we have, you know, a, a few other agencies. I think that's also WA Radioactive Whatever Council. And APANSA sits under the Department of Health, so they have health as its focus. There's no equivalent in Malaysia. So the structure of uh, monitoring in Malaysia and in Australia is vastly different, not even looking at the resourcing and also the technical capability and scientific capabilities and so on and so forth. We're looking at what's happening in Australia with climate change and the the huge rainfalls that we're having right down many parts of Australia. Mm. What's the situation Mm. in Malaysia? Uh, Yeah, very bad. I mean, they're getting extreme, you know, weather events just like we do. And um, the monsoon has been getting very severe with a huge amount of rain. Yeah, being uh, precipitated in a very short time, like you get something like 200 worth of rain in one day in Malaysia, in Kuantan specifically. And that inundates huge 
areas, including the waste piles, which Linus is now accumulated by the plant. And, you know, of course, there's overburden or overflow, and uh, that's where a lot of the pollution and radiation uh, hazards get spread around. You know, when you have uh, a high population close by and then you've got um, residential people within two kilometers of the plant, they're the one who's going to cop it. I mean, of course, the effects take decades and even years, you know, to be shown, but radioactive hazards uh, accumulates in one's body over one's lifetime. Same with pollution, uh, you know, some of the pollutants or contaminated uh, heavy metals and stuff like that that enters into humans' bodies through pollution. <laughs> Nobody wants to be constantly kind of fed this kind of health hazard. And yet, you know, you have where the majority political dynamic to speak out. Just finally, Lee Tan, as you write, Australia has the obligation and responsibility to accept and dispose of this radioactive waste. And there are precedents in Australia to accept radioactive waste from other countries if the radioactive materials originate from Australia. Yeah, that's right. That's correct. There's been cases, I, I think it was under NSTOR, where radioactive materials processed in the UK has, you know, has been, well, the waste anyway, has been returned to Australia for management or for, for disposal. I personally do not advocate for any large-scale waste dump, uh, radioactive waste dump in, in Australia, but yeah, I mean, by and large, Australia has the has a greater capacity to manage this waste, although they're very expensive. It shouldn't be the responsibility of the public or, you know, taxpayers to manage this type of waste. Uh, but in the case of Linus waste, the waste is, um, another term for it is called norm waste or naturally occurring radioactive materials waste. Uh, they have specific, over in Australia, every state has specific guidelines uh, and policy governing them. them and uh, because Linus only the company in Malaysia uh, 100% is making a lot of profit out of it. And under the international principle governing radioactive waste, the justification, the benefit, and so on and so forth, I mean, Malaysians are not benefiting from it apart from the workers who are getting paid. They shouldn't be shouldering the burdens of the hazards, you know, indefinitely from Linus. So Linus should bear the full responsibility. And if needed, you know, the Australian government should really put pressure on Linus to comply with his own law, to be fair, especially when the government is supportive of Linus and its operations and rare supply chain. You're saying that these rare earths are important for many areas. Are there alternatives? Yeah, there, there are. It's not easy to find alternatives, but increasingly, because of controversies around rare earth production, some companies are looking at alternatives, and they are alternatives. There are batteries that kind of do not use rare earth in the magnet 
I think the hydrogen fuel cell, for example, is one example where energy storage does not depend on rare earth elements uh, in the battery. As we know, Jen, in the industry, they often choose the cheapest possible path and not look into the pollution, the social and, and environmental and, and also the health impacts of their operations because they can get away with it. For those people who are advocating for renewable energy, for low emission technology, for the so-called transition, you know, from fossil fuel to a green economy, these kind of issues um, should be looked into to avoid passing the hazards to, you know, places of so yeah that are weaker in resisting and that has got lesser capacity to reject this type of project. Yeah, I guess, you know, we need to uh, practice just transition rather than advocating for transition away from uh, fossil fuel. And another aspect of the Linus operation in Malaysia is its use of massive quantity of drinking water, you know, and in direct competition with the local people in Kuantan and surrounding uh, area. And that's created health issues related to constant water disruption to residents and businesses and also economic losses for local people. Although the Water Authority had never acknowledged that it is due to Linus, but we know just from Linus' own blueprint that it is um, discharging over 500,000 litres of wastewater every, every hour. And that means, you know, it needs that much water at the same time as well for its operation. So, yeah, Linus is a raw deal for Malaysia. Yeah, energy and low emission technology must be carried out under just transition kind of uh, framework, not in that kind of uh, raising to the bottom type of scenario, you know, using geopolitics, and also the need for rare earth in the, in, uh, in the weapon industry to justify the imbalance and the injustice, as in the case of Linus. And thanks once again to environmental activist and consultant, Lee Tan. St Kilda Festival is back in 2023 with two days of summer fun, Saturday 18th and Sunday 19th of February. Saturday kicks off with a celebration of First Peoples artists including Christine Arnu, Jem Cassadaly, Dean Brady and more. On Sunday, the party takes to the St Kilda streets with hoodoo gurus, Yothu Yindi, Confidence Man and heaps more. Free and all ages, see the program at stkildafestival.com.au. St Kilda Festival is a 3CR supporter. And for a focus on Pacific issues, I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McFarlane. First, Nick Fiji. Let's look at the history of the new Prime Minister, Sidivini Rambuka, from military to politician. Rambuka is an interesting character. He was a, you know, in, in his youth a military officer and indeed led the first two coups in Fiji in 1987. First in May 87 and then again in September, Rambuka overthrew the government led by uh, 
Timothy Bavandra, the first Fiji Labour Party Prime Minister that uh, the country had ever seen, then again uh, reinforced his power in September that year. Rumbuk has come back in recent times as a politician, was leader of a party called Sadelpa, the Social Democratic uh, Liberal Party, uh, which is a conservative Fijian-based party in Fiji, but uh, broke away uh, a year or two ago and uh, formed his own party, the People's Alliance, which is now the largest uh, uh, force in a coalition government in Fiji. You know, last year, 2022, was a significant time for elections uh, around the Pacific Islands region. Obviously, each election is driven by national issues, by domestic issues, but many of them have regional and international resonance. And if you think about, you know, the change of government in Australia and the uh, election of the Australian Labor Party, that has enormous impact on climate policy in the Pacific Islands. The re-election of James Marape in Papua New Guinea was significant. If Marape had lost office, there'd be a lot of loss of momentum around uh, the transition towards independence in Bougainville. There's a lot of roadblocks still on the pathway to sovereignty for the people of Bougainville, but uh, Marape's re-election at least keeps the process uh, moving forward. Change of president in uh, Nauru, which has implications for uh, uh, issues like deep sea mining, because uh, Nauru's a a big supporter of uh, deep sea mining, which is going to be a very contentious issue this year at the Pacific Islands Forum. And similarly on the international stage, the re-election of President Macron has enormous implications for the French dependencies, as we've talked about a lot on this program. Similarly, uh, Joe Biden's uh, midterm elections, although the Democratic Party did very well, the loss of control, uh, a majority in the House of Representatives, has implications about whether the Biden administration will be able to get a lot of finance through, including for things like climate change. All of these elections um, have regional, international significance as well as domestic. And that's certainly true of the transition from uh, the Bainimarama government to this coalition, three-party coalition led by uh, Sidibeni Rambuka. And what's his relations with the military now? Well, it's a, a mixed relationship. I mean, as a, as a former soldier, uh, although that was a long time ago, he still has uh, close ties to many in the, uh, in the military. Indeed, uh, during the election period, uh, when counting was underway, there was a dispute over um, uh, an electoral app that was put forward by the, the Fiji Electoral Commission and uh, disputes over counting during the actual election process. And Rambuka wrote to the president, to the Electoral Commission and to the military, the commander of the uh, military, um, seeking support um, to ensure the uh, the fairness of the election. And there's been a bit of a tussle, you know, between uh, uh, the current commander of, of the Fiji military forces and the new government over the military's role. And that's, uh, you know, caused some tremors within the Fijian population, given the history of coups. Rambuka's two coups in 1987, uh, the George Spate coup in 2000, and similarly the 2006 coup, that led um, former Prime Minister Vorengi Bainimarama to power. I know I've asked you this before, Nick, but can you briefly explain why this nation of Fiji is prone to coups? One of the, the tensions has been the underlying constitutional issues related to definition around uh, who's Fijian. Uh, you know, when the British uh, ruled Fiji up until 1970, they created quite significant divisions between 
the indigenous uh, Fijian population, the Tauke as they're known, the descendants of uh, people from India who came uh, between 1879 and 1916 as indentured labourers, uh, later as uh, traders and, and people from the Gujarat came to Fiji, and the descendants of those people known as Indo-Fijians, and the small European elite and partly Chinese elite uh, that controlled uh, the commanding heights of the economies during the colonial days. And there was a real separation of communities where, in many cases, ordinary Fijians, and indeed the Fijian elite, uh, the Fijian uh, Ratus, the chiefs, were kept out of key economic areas. And one of the big changes that's occurred since the 1980s, and this was highlighted by Rumbuka's coups, was attempts to bring Fijians into the commanding heights of the economy. And we've seen significant shifts um, with the creation of uh, companies like Fiji Holdings Limited uh, and others, where um, there's greater involvement of Fijians. And also we've seen um, over decades a number of people leaving Fiji so the Indo-Fijian population has shrunk as a proportion simply because many people migrated after the 87 coups, the 2000 coups, indeed uh, less so, but still a number after 2006. Um, so those unresolved questions have been there. There's been several attempts to develop a new constitution in Fiji um, by Rumbuka during his time, where he brought in a constitution that was very much directed towards so-called Italke rights. More recently, there was a constitution in the late 1990s that attempted to uh, bring back more democratic forms, um, and that constitution was introduced, but then again uh, uh, transformed, and the Bainimarama administration, uh, before it returned to parliamentary rule in 2014, Bainimarama brought in a new constitution in 2013 that, that framed the return to parliamentary rule. So after you know, taking power in a coup in 2006, Baini Marama returned to government in uh, 2014 as an elected politician um, and served uh, two terms, um, only losing in December uh, 2022. So there's still debate about what constitutional legal structures can uh, recognise the rights of Fiji's multicultural population. Frankly, still outstanding discussions about whether people are just Fijian or whether their identity as Italke, as Indo-Fijian, as people of uh, mixed race is is part of their uh, their identity. And that's still a sensitive issue for some in Fiji. What about Fiji's relations with other Pacific nations? And I've noticed that he's either there now or just come back from Kiribati. Yeah, Rambuka has very clearly uh, shown that he wants to reorient uh, Fiji's foreign policy. At one level, that's been uh, focused on uh, relations uh, with Australia and New Zealand, and the uh, election of the Rambuka government's been pretty warmly welcomed in both Canberra and Wellington and Washington. Um, Rambuka's already taken steps uh, to lessen uh, the influence of China in some areas. For example, China, under the Bainimarama government, had uh, deployed... uh, members of the Ministry of State Security as police liaison in uh, Fiji. That uh, memorandum of understanding between the two countries looks like it's now going to be revoked. So there's steps really to reorient towards more the Western alliance. Nonetheless, China remains uh, a significant economic partner in Fiji, and uh, even the Rambuka government won't breach uh, all uh, links with China. 
because of the economic importance of China to the country. Similarly, Bainimarama uh, played a pretty crucial role in recent times as the chair of the Pacific Islands Forum. The chair rotates uh, with the uh, uh, the hosting of the forum, and Fiji hosted uh, in July this year, uh, July 2022, the uh, the forum. Rambuka now, as incoming prime minister, takes over the chair for uh, uh, the uh, first half of this year, essentially, until the forum is next held in the Cook Islands later in 2023. As the chair of the forum and as the new Fiji prime minister, he travelled to Kiribati, um, one of Fiji's uh, neighbours to the north. People may remember that uh, Kiribati, as a Micronesian nation, was one of a group of five that complained about the election of uh, Henry Puna as the Secretary-General of the Forum. The four other members of the Micronesian President's Summit came back into the Forum uh, at the time of the July Summit in uh, in Suva. Um, but Kiribati maintained its uh, concern that there were still administrative, uh, uh, procedural, political reforms to be undertaken within the Forum before they'd come back into the fold. Bainimarama has made a, a really uh, significant visit uh, pretty early in his administration to Kiribati, wearing the hat of forum chair, and a very warm relationship uh, on the surface between uh, him and President uh, Tanis Mamal, President of the Fijian delegation, presented a formal customary ceremony called Imboka, and uh, also a Sevu Sevu, so presented a, a whale's tooth, which is a traditional uh, gesture of uh, apology and reconciliation, uh, of, of friendship within Fijian culture. Um, so it's very much an example of oceanic diplomacy where Rambuka seems to have uh, persuaded President Mamao um, of uh, Kiribati that the time is now to come back uh, and reassume full membership of the forum. Um, the forum leaders are planning a meeting uh, possibly in the last week of February to hold a, a special leaders' summit, um, at which point that reconciliation process will be achieved. So in some ways it's taken time, uh, it's taken a lot of dialogue, but the, um, uh, my editor, Samantha Magic, uh, on behalf of Islands Business Magazine, travelled to Fiji as the reporting on the, the delegation and, you know, really commented a lot on the, the warmth of the, the engagement so that uh, example of oceanic cultural diplomacy, building relationships across uh, the Pacific, is a, is a pretty crucial element of uh, regional dynamics. And so Rambuka is you know, making a lot of changes domestically, um, sacking and or uh, uh, relocating a number of key public servants and diplomats, but also acting on the regional stage. Well, the others um, have said that they're coming back. Uh, Marshall Islands particularly had... Problems coming to the forum in July because uh, their parliament, the Nitijela, had uh, passed laws saying that uh, the Marshall Islands were going to pull out of the forum. They hadn't uh, revoked that law by the time of the July summit, but since then um, President uh, Kabua of the Marshall Islands has formally uh, said that the Marshall Islands will uh, rejoin the, uh, the forum. So the Micronesian President's Summit, this group of five Micronesian nations, has... Um, you know, one, a number of concessions at a practical level. Um, the forum will now set up a sub-office in the Northern Pacific, next Secretary-General, to be uh, elected in 2024 at the end of the current term of the Secretary-General Henry Puna of the Cook Islands. The next Secretary-General will be a Micronesian. 
And the the current candidate, although let's see when it happens, is uh, Gerald Zakios, who is a Marshall Islander, currently the ambassador to the uh, United States and the United Nations for the Marshall Islands. So Zakios is scheduled to take office um, in early 2024, so a year away from now. In the meantime, though, the Cook Islands um, is hosting the forum later this year, probably uh, sometime September, October this year. The dates aren't set. Uh, and that'll be a, a really crucial time for a lot of debates on all the spectrum of issues uh, that the Pacific has been campaigning around under their 2050 strategy for a blue Pacific continent. Questions about oceans, questions about fisheries, um, obviously climate change, um, but particularly the uh, geopolitical contest between uh, uh, the United States and China, which really frames a whole lot of politics across the region, although there are obviously domestic drivers and domestic agency where Pacific Islanders are not sitting back and waiting, but sort of putting forward their own agendas and their own priorities. And one of the common complaints that you hear from um, leaders across the region is that this geopolitical context is causing problems, is diverting away from priorities, uh, the greatest priority, of course, being climate change and action on climate change, but uh, in other areas where, um, you know, investment, uh, loans, grants that come from major powers are being driven more by the geopolitical context and contest with China than the priorities and agendas that are coming from Pacific Island governments and communities. Do you believe it will calm down a bit this year? Because we had almost hysteria last year, didn't we, about the position of China in the Pacific? I don't think it will calm down in the short term simply because China is a major economic power and is the largest trading partner of um, uh, most Pacific Island countries. (laughs) Ironically, even those that are aligned with Taiwan diplomatically rather than with the People's Republic. Um, so China is a significant player at an economic level and, and increasingly at a political level. And there are issues where um, China's call for South-South cooperation resonates. There's also uh, a wariness about the response from um, Western allies like the United States, Australia and Japan. And as one example that's really high on the agenda for the Pacific Islands Forum is Japan's nuclear policies. Japan is a major, uh, what they call, development partner with the Pacific. It's uh, a key donor to many uh, Pacific Island countries, um, uh, you know, a very large provider of uh, development assistance aid. There's a regular summit called PALM, the Pacific Area Leaders Meeting. So every few years, uh, Pacific Island leaders meet with their Japanese uh, counterpart, the Japanese Prime Minister, and so on. But uh, Japan is planning to proceed in the next few months with a a plan to start dumping treated contaminated wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear reactor into the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Japan has been storing wastewater from used to cool the uh, meltdown fuel rods in the Fukushima reactor following the 2011 accident that devastated the the reactors uh, on the Japanese coast. They've been storing, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tonnes of uh, contaminated water in uh, storage tanks. And now, after treatment through a liquid processing scheme, Japan's proposing, basically to save money, to pump the contaminated water into the Pacific Ocean. Although the Japanese government claims that this can be done safely and that only tritium, one radioisotope, will be left after the treatment process, many 
Pacific governments and neighbours like China, South Korea and others are furious at this Japanese plan. So although Japan's a key development partner and a key member of the Western Alliance, Australia, Japan, United States particularly, working through the Quad, working through a trilateral infrastructure partnership that was created in 2018, people are really angry across the Pacific Islands about this Japanese proposal. And the forum has created a special panel of scientists to take on the Japanese and raise real questions. Uh, People interested in this may want to look at an article I wrote for Inside Story, a website, uh, insidestory.com.au, that talks about the technicalities of this plan and why people in the Pacific are so angry about the perceived or real threat to fisheries and to marine uh, biota. Do you believe it can be stopped? There's a significant push, not just from the Pacific, but from countries in ASEAN, uh, from the Chinese government and others. And Japan has sort of hinted they are planning to defer this. Um, it's a really a cost-cutting measure. You know, TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, which is the Japanese corporation responsible for Fukushima and for the cleanup, is in desperate and dire financial situation. You know, the cleanup costs so far have been about 12 trillion yen, which is about 80 billion US dollars. It's an enormous clean-up. They're not even halfway there. There's going to be tens of billions of dollars spent in coming decades to clean up the mess at Fukushima. The Japanese government, i.e. ordinary Japanese taxpayers, have lent 10 trillion yen, you know, $70 billion to TEPCO in low-interest, no-interest loans to help with that process. They were supposed to start paying back some of those loans and they haven't done so. So TEPCO is in dire financial straits, and there are methods that could be used to deal with this contaminated nuclear wastewater to, you know, have a systems to uh, allow the decay of radioactive isotopes, radionuclides that are dangerous to human health and the environment, but that would take time and it would take money. And basically, TEPCO is trying to do the cheap and nasty way to just literally treat it quickly and then pump it out into the ocean, hoping that the vast Pacific will defer the, the damage um, and dilute the damage that can be caused by people. But, um, you know, already there's a lot of science. Uh, you know, scientists have found that after the, immediately after the accident in 2012, 2011, 2012, that uh, tuna were, were caught uh, off the coast of the United States with contamination from Fukushima, so fish that had travelled across the Pacific. And this is a huge issue for um, people in the Western and Central Pacific given that at about 60-65% of the world's tuna comes from this area. So the fishing industry is really hostile to Japanese policy. So that's just one example where people in the Pacific, although they look to Western allies like the United States, Australia, Japan for development assistance, are also really angry that uh, their interests are being ignored or, or downplayed by a key partner. Well, to my knowledge, Nick, the Australian government hasn't said much about this, but Australia is an important member of the Pacific Islands Forum. Yeah, and Australia has not said boo about Japan, although they are a member of the Forum, which has raised these concerns with Japan and uh, indeed is planning a meeting in February um, with a Pacific ministerial delegation to go to Japan to talk about these concerns if the Japanese will hand over further data that's required. I mean, one of the, the key features that we've seen is that the United States... Japan and Australia particularly, and sometimes drawing in other partners like New Zealand, have been uh, working together to respond to Chinese influence. 
Um, you only have to read the newspapers to know that um, China has been uh, investing uh, and providing loans and grants to countries in the Pacific and indeed all around the world for infrastructure like wharves, public buildings, um, ports, airport upgrades and so on. And as part of this geopolitical contest, Australia has um, worked with the United States and Japan to um, respond to that challenge. At the 2018 APEC Summit, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit in Port Moresby, uh, then Vice President uh, Pence from the United States and uh, Australia's then Prime Minister announced an Australia-Japan-US trilateral infrastructure partnership. And those countries have been working together to set up common systems of quality standards on infrastructure. Together with India, they're members of what's called the QUAD, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, and they've now set up an infrastructure pillar. The United States created a, a network called the Partners in the Blue Pacific with Australia, New Zealand, Japan and Britain, <laughs> not the Europeans, not the French. You know, So there's very much an Anglosphere plus Japan initiative. And so you see these sort of initiatives of coordination where there's a, a shift towards infrastructure and technology financing and telecommunications and internet cabling, which is competing with China, but it's also competing with funding for community-led development assistance programs. And many Pacific Island communities are very critical that while better infrastructure is welcome, scarce resources are being drawn away from the priorities that they have on things like, for example, preparedness for disasters, loss and damage, um, adaptation to the community-level impacts of climate change. So while many Pacific governments welcome infrastructure support, be it from China or elsewhere, there's real concerns that the containment of China is driving policy to a greater extent than the development and environmental priorities of island nations. And is this infrastructure development a bit like aid where the donor country actually benefits greatly from it? Absolutely. And there's a, a few classic examples. One of the, the significant ones is the case of Digicel, uh, the purchase of the Digicel phone network across the Pacific by the Australian corporation Telstra. Digicel is an Irish-based company that started uh, setting up mobile phone programs across the Pacific, beginning in Samoa in 2006, extending to Papua New Guinea the following year. Very quickly, Digicel Pacific became the leading to telecommunications, the leading mobile phone operator across the Pacific. They had 2.5 million subscribers in Papua New Guinea, Fiji, Vanuatu, Tonga, Nauru, really operating across the region. Fast forward by 2020, though, they had significant debts as a company, and they basically sold off their um, big operations. Now, there was great concern in Canberra and Washington that a Chinese corporation might move to buy Digicel's operations across the region. And so Telstra put in a bid to buy Digicel's Pacific operations, basically to crowd out Chinese competitors. And because of that, the Australian government, starting with um, the Morrison government, decided to underwrite this purchase. And we're talking about, you know, $1.6 billion US to, to buy out Digicel's operations. So in October 2021, our then Foreign Affairs Minister Maurice Payne announced that the Morrison government was going to give a financing package to Telstra through Export Finance Australia. That's a government institution that, as the name suggests, provides funding to promote the export of Australian goods and services um, around the world. And so of the $1.6 billion price, we were going to underwrite $1.3 billion. 
US of that. You've got a situation where, because of concern about China and uh, possible Chinese corporations buying into this, Telstra you know, bought the company in July last year with 1.3 billion of Australian taxpayers' funds through Export Finance Australia. Now, 1.3 billion is a lot of money, US, and uh, that's indeed about the size of our overseas aid program in the Pacific. So people in the Pacific are saying, hang on, your taxpayers are subsidising an Australian corporation to buy into operations around the Pacific at a time where we're also calling for finance for loss and damage, which Australia has refused to commit to, the loss and damage fund that was created at COP26 last year thus far. You know, Australia should be paying about $3 billion a year in public and private finance for climate finance. One of the key concerns of Pacific Island governments that they've been talking about for a long, long time. And although the um, United States and Australia have upped their climate finance in, in recent years under both the Biden and uh, Albanese governments, they're still meeting nowhere near the targets of what they should be providing. But you're seeing closer collaboration, and so the Albanese governments saw this Telstra style as an opportunity to draw in both Japan and US funding into the island's region. So in November last year at the G20 summit, US President Biden, Prime Minister Albanese, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida announced that the US and Japan would both kick in $50 million US to support the financing package, which is Telstra's acquisition of Digicel. So that's only another $100 million from Japan and the United States in a $1.3 billion funding. A long way to go. But the symbolism of United States, Japan and Australia investing in telecommunications infrastructure together is uh, really striking. And basically, the US and Japan are using their public funds to help an Australian company, Telstra, use Australian taxpayer funds to buy Digicel to crowd out Chinese investment. You know, while telecommunications are vital, Pacific Islanders really, you know, have swung into mobile phone technology uh, really, you know, in a, in a key way. There's a lot of questions about, is this the best use of scarce resources in the partnership with the region? And there are other examples. At the same APEC summit in 2018, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, Japan announced the PNG Electrification Partnership. Uh, this is a $1.7 billion agreement between the four governments to connect 70% of PNG's population to the electricity grid by 2030. Big announcement, big challenge though. Anyone who's been to Papua New Guinea will know the, the difficulties of uh, getting electricity across such a diverse country from the highlands to the islands, from the coast to, to the regions. It's an enormous challenge. So the big announceable was the commitment that uh, Australia, United States, Japan, New Zealand would collaborate to keep the Chinese out. Hasn't yet seen results on the ground. And we're seeing a lot of these sort of announceables at these summits, at these global summits like the G20, like the Pacific Islands Forum and, and beyond, where governments make announceables, but action on the ground takes a long way. And many church and community organisations in the Pacific say, how about funding us to do work on the ground rather than make these grand announceables, which in large part benefit the corporate sector from overseas rather than local businesses, local institutions and local communities. And many thanks to journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. 
Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. And now for part two of the interview with Sasha Gillies Lakagas, PhD candidate looking at Cuba and the Pacific Islands. With that focus now on the Pacific Islands nations now, Sasha, are there specific Pacific Islands? Yeah, it is really, of course, a critical area of research for our own region, for Oceania. Because when we, when we tend to think of cooperation with the Pacific Islands, we're of course thinking of Australia, New Zealand, China, United States, all of which of course do contribute significant sums of money and equipment um, and other forms of assistance. Now of course, you know, we, we know and we've seen in recent history that countries like Australia have very ulterior, have ulterior motives, have ulterior machinations in uh, quite a few of their engagements with Pacific Island countries. But of course we also have the elephant in the room, which is Cuba, which, you know, is a small island nation, which is underdeveloped, which uh, has few resources, isolated. All of these are characteristics shared by the Pacific Island countries. And they're on opposite sides of the world. It is the most improbable cooperation that you could possibly think of. And yet, after doing my research in Cuba, and I will be going to Pacific countries this year to continue the research, but even from what I I garnered from my time in Cuba, this cooperation with the Pacific region is expanding. Cuban cooperation in the Pacific Island countries is the most recent instance of medical internationalism from Cuba. It only began in about 1999-2000. It started with East Timor when Cuba sent thousands of doctors over to support the newly independent nation's healthcare system to help build it up. In fact, East Timor's modern public healthcare system is more or less the product of Cuban medical cooperation. The East Timorese government has acknowledged this as such. Um, Zanana Guzmao is one of the leaders of the East Timor independence movement um, and has been a prominent politician throughout the independence era. He's a very, very good friend of the Cuban government and he, he has on numerous occasions lauded the work of Cuban doctors and they are still there in East Timor. But this has expanded to many other countries. You know, uh, CG, in particular, Cuban doctors were sent after Cyclone Yasi, uh, which was in 2016, if my memory serves me correctly, to support the response to, to all the damage that that cyclone wreaked. They've sent doctors to Solomon Islands, and I'll go back to this specific case because I actually had a lot to do with this when I was in Cuba. And also Nauru, Tonga, Samoa, all of these countries have either had a, and Kiribati as well, and all of these countries have either had a Cuban medical presence at one point or another, or that they've sent their own medical students to Cuba to study on free scholarships in healthcare at the Latin American School of Medicine. I'll go back to the case of the Solomon Islands in particular because I was privileged enough to have an interview with His Excellency Simeon Baro, who is the, um, the Solomon Islands ambassador to Cuba, and he indicated that the Solomon Islands government views Cuba as being on par with Australia 
and New Zealand and China in terms of a development partner, that that is the degree of importance that the Solomon Islands places on their cooperation with Cuba. He indicated that the Prime Minister, Manasseh Sogavari himself, is very personally invested in the success of cooperation with the Cuban government, that he often asks the ambassador on you know, the progress of students, how many new students are going to study in, in um, Havana. So this is a very, very important relationship, at least for the Solomon Islands. Uh, he provided some figures that were really revealing just as to the scale of change that Cuba has been able to assist with in terms of training up and supporting healthcare systems in the Solomon Islands. So he told me that in the 40 years prior to 2007, which is when Cuba first began cooperating with the Solomons, the Solomon Islands trained up 100 doctors across 40 years. This is a very, very low number of doctors. And this is an issue across the Pacific, but many of them have left the country as a part of a brain drain. They either go to Australia or New Zealand or even other regional Pacific powers like Fiji and Papua New Guinea where the pay to be a medic is better. But he has indicated that between 2007 and 2022, so the roughly 13 years that Cuba has been training up Solomon Island students, 104 new doctors have been trained within 13 years. Within a quarter of the time frame, Cuba has doubled the Solomon Islands um, healthcare workforce, just Cuba alone, to the point where we now have Cuban graduates in charge of regional healthcare bodies in the different provinces of the Solomon Islands and even in the National Referral Centre in Honiara, in the capital. So Cuba has had a disproportionately positive impact on healthcare development in the Solomon Islands, particularly when we compare it to development assistance, for example, from Australia. Now, this is not to say Australian assistance has had no positive benefits for the Solomons because Australia has invested very, very large sums of money and improved infrastructure in the Solomon Islands. Um, that's not in dispute. But when we're focusing on this issue of healthcare particularly, the ambassador indicated that often Australia will donate vast amounts of money for, you know, new medical equipment or, you know, new facilities, but they will not actually train up the workforce, the human capital to be able to utilise those new facilities or those new pieces of equipment. So in this regard, Cuba plays a really critical role in filling that development gap for the Solomon Islands. And he indicated, the ambassador indicated, that they are looking to expand cooperation with Cuba. They're looking to learn how to produce traditional green medicines, as Cuba does with its local vegetation, its local flora, uh, because the Solomon Islands actually has a lot of similar vegetation that can be used to produce domestic medications on an industrial scale. So they're looking to cooperate with Cuba in this regard. And even beyond medication, for example, the Pacific Games are going to be taking place in Honiara this year. And the Solomon Islands actually wants to contract Cuban boxing coaches to train their boxing team for the Solomon Islands Pacific Games. There's a really dynamic sort of phase of cooperation that we're seeing between Cuba and the Solomon Islands. Um, and even if we go to other countries, for example, with Fiji. Now, unfortunately, this interview didn't end up happening because the person in question uh, had their visit postponed till February this year. But the vice rector of Fiji's, uh, of the University of Fiji, so the Fiji National University, in February will be going to Cuba to sign education cooperation agreements. Um, so in particular, looking at expanding the number of scholarships uh, for Fijian medical students, um, but also looking at the possibility of getting Cuban Spanish teachers to teach at 
uh, the University of Fiji to teach Spanish, not only as, as a means of facilitating the medical scholarships, but also just as a, as a general interest and as a general sort of cultural subject. So we're seeing some really, really interesting forays on the part of the Pacific Islands into expanding their cooperation with Cuba. Now, even though there was COVID-19 and we had, you know, more or less the cessation of a lot of these scholarship projects, for example, a lot of Pacific Island students in Cuba went back to their home countries during COVID, all of that has now begun again. So the students have returned or are in the process of returning to Havana. The countries are providing a new round of scholarships. In the case of the Solomon Islands, they're going to be providing about four or five new um, scholarships for students to go over to Cuba. They should be arriving in March this year. And similarly, countries like Fiji, Tonga and Kiribati are also looking to expand the number of Cuban uh, scholarship graduates who can go over and study at the Latin American School of Medicine. So we're seeing, you know, we're seeing a very, uh, in, not in every case, but in some cases, for example, the Solomon Islands, quite a substantial increase in cooperation. And this is important because it is South-to-South cooperation without the machinations or the ulterior motives of former colonial powers and current neo-colonial powers, which are omnipresent in the Pacific. And I'm talking, of course, about Australia, New Zealand and the United States chiefly. But of course, this is also a cooperation that is not only rooted in state-to-state cooperation, so we don't have that sort of private sector motivation. We don't have that foreign NGO presence which has often come into conflict with the state apparatus in other countries where we've seen cooperation. But this is also rooted in solidarity. Now, of course, Cuba, with other countries it can afford to pay, does receive compensation for its medical cooperation. Now, we're talking countries like Venezuela, Mexico, Italy, Qatar, Algeria. But in the case of the Pacific Islands, this is free. This cooperation with with countries like Solomon Islands, Fiji, all of this is totally free because these countries cannot afford to pay for those scholarships. In fact, you know, the, the ambassador made a point that they often only have not even a handful of students going to study in Australia because Australia doesn't offer any scholarships to the Solomon Islands. Australia has places if you're willing to pay if you're an international student to study medicine, but that's for any country. And of course, most Solomon Islanders don't have that money. You know, this sort of Cuban cooperation, this more altruistic cooperation is really, really critical. Sasha, have you had the opportunity to visit that Latin American School of Medicine and also maybe the facilities where they produce the pharmaceutical medicines? Yeah, so actually I have been able to visit both. I, of course, didn't see very much of either. They're programmed visits. You, of course, for example, in the case of... I'll start with um, the School of Medicine, the Latin American School of Medicine, which is a large facility on the outskirts of Havana. It's quite quite some way away from the city centre, but it is a very large medical school. I was able to tour the classrooms. Uh, I was able to speak with some of the teachers there and some of the students there as well. And it is a very, very impressive facility, of course, Cuban healthcare educators are world-renowned. They're, they're very, very good at what they do. And the only thing that is sometimes a difficulty is, you know, students are coming from all over the world and their classes are in Spanish. So there's a very intensive Spanish learning program. But of course, everyone doesn't always get, you know, the same amount of knowledge out of it as others. So there are some students who struggle initially because they're learning all of this, you know, really complex medical terminology and knowledge in a different language that they may not be very familiar or comfortable with. 
But I spoke to students and they said that after about, you know, after a year, year and a half, they're well and truly prepared to continue with their degree in Cuba, which is normally about five to seven years, depending on the particular course. The students I spoke with are really, really grateful for this opportunity because these students, of course, are from low socioeconomic areas in their respective nations. So these are not people who, who have the money to pay for a medical scholarship. So, you know, I spoke, for example, I've spoken with um, students from African countries, from Mozambique, from Namibia, from the Republic of Congo, from Chad, and they all expressed, you know, really, really serious gratitude for the opportunity, not only that Cuba has provided, but that their governments have provided, you know, in some cases, quite a courageous thing for a government to, to sign a cooperation agreement like this with Cuba, because even doing something as simple as that can incur the wrath of the United States. They were very, very conscious of that fact, and, and particularly students from these African nations were very conscious of the fact that these opportunities would not be available to them in any other way, shape or form. A lot of Latin American students as well are similar. There's a number from Colombia, Mexico and Haiti. And in particular, the Haitians are very, very supportive, not only, not only of this program, this, you know, the scholarship program, but just of the Cuban development model itself. It seemed from my conversations with them that they would like Haiti to be a lot more like Cuba. And this, of course, is in part due to the fact not only that Cuba trains them in medicine, but that they have themselves, one of them told me, they have seen Cuban doctors working in Haitian slums, in, you know, in communities in, in Haiti. It's a very, very exciting and, and robust link that has been established between students and the Cuban scholarship program and all of the teachers involved. Um, and, of course, there are Pacific Islander students. I spoke with, with one from Fiji, one from Solomon Islands, who are also very grateful because, again, they, they would not have been able to study in Australia or Papua New Guinea or Fiji. There are also students from some Asian countries as well, Laos, Vietnam, Iran. It's a, it's a real melting pot of all sorts of different students from all over the world. And in terms of the vaccine clinic, I went to... So it's, it's actually the International Medical Centre, Sida Garcia. So this is the clinic that treats foreigners if they, ever, if they ever have health issues or get into an accident in Cuba. And they are one of the centres that was responsible for researching for the vaccine and helping to produce the vaccine. They're not the main one. Um, there's a biopharmaceutical park on the outskirts of Havana that was the centre of all of that, but this clinic assisted in that sort of process, process of the development and production of the vaccine. And I actually was privileged enough to be able to... Well, it's an interesting story. I got an appointment to have a dose of Soberana Plus, which is the, the booster shot of the Cuban vaccines. Uh, normally, it's reserved for Cubans or diplomatic personnel, but just because of, you know, particular people I knew who have connections to the healthcare system, I was able to get an appointment. So I went to this clinic, Sida Garcia. I spoke with uh, the doctor who was going to be giving me the dose, and he explained to me the process, you know, the immense amounts of of scientific brain power, human resources that was put into producing that vaccine. You know, the fact that they were relying on locally produced and locally sourced components and materials to actually put, you know, that vaccine together and actually combine all of those different elements. It's a really remarkable story that they've been able to produce five different vaccines. But what happened, and, you know, this just exemplifies how senselessly inhumane the blockade is when I went to pay my card was declined because 
now Australian banks are now covered under the US sanctions. And now because because of the changes in monetary policy in Cuba, you can't pay for these sorts of government services in cash. You pay with a card. I, of course, don't have a Cuban credit card. I have an Australian one. We tried a number of different things. We tried to send myself an email invoice to see if it would work. It declined. We sent an email invoice to my family to see if they could pay for it from outside the country. It declined. And in the end, really, really um, unfortunately, I couldn't get the dose because there was just no way for me to pay. This really just shows you that in spite of all of the, you know, the impressive developments and advancements in medicine that Cuba has made, even someone like me, who's not even near the United States, cannot take advantage of it because of the just the sheer reach and the penetration of the US blockade and the sanctions to the point that it covers something like medicine which is a humanitarian good which is a, which is a, which is a right for everyone can i look at this now sasha at a, a personal level for you where you stayed the families you stayed with the young people that you mixed with can you mm. tell us some stories about that? I've been to Cuba, as I said, you know, this is this was my fourth time in Cuba, so I've built up a lot of personal and professional relationships with different people. I ended up staying with a really, really lovely family, um, in a in a house called Casa Margarita. Margarita was the lovely old lady who owned the house. Her and her son in law Julio ran the Airbnb in Cuba they're called Casas Particulares. Anywhere you go, this is something that I, I would like to reinforce. That Cuba has a very solidarity-minded uh, sense of community. That you know, you you really will just be stopped by every second person in the street, and you'll have a conversation with them. Depends, of course, whether or not you you like that, because of course it's quite different here in Australia. There's not that culture. I personally really, really enjoy it. I love to get to know people, and particularly in Cuba, you know, you just never know what people have done. For example, I met someone who who, you know, just casually mentioned that she used to be a, a medic who was working in Qatar in a hospital in one of the Cuban internationalist missions. So you just meet so many fascinating people. I met a former soldier, a former decorated soldier, who ended up helping me navigate some of, you know, to get to some of the areas I needed to for interviews and other work for my PhD thesis. Um, so, you know, you just meet the, the most incredible people. I had dinner most nights with the family I stayed with in 2020 when I did my exchange. So that was the four generations, you know, starting right at the old man Anibal, who fought with Fidel Castro, down to Nina, who is from the Soviet, or from the ex-Soviet Union, but chose to stay in Cuba, her daughter Anna, who runs the house, and then Anna's daughter Gabby. So, you know, full house, lots of, lots of community opportunities to share my work, to discuss all of these different topics with them. Uh, my university friends as well, of course, that I met last time. Also, I met Ivan, who is, you know, a really incredible, dedicated young worker from ECAP, which is, you know, the solidarity organ, organization responsible for liaising, for example, with the Australia-Cuba Friendship Society. And he was just, you know, incredible in terms of his drive and his dedication to try and increase exchanges between Cuba and Australia and the Pacific. I, I would just say that there is such a, a diverse array 
of people, uh, but the thing that unifies them is they will all go out of your way to help you and try and share what their country has to offer or what their country can offer in terms of a different perspective. Because, you know, and, and people said as much to me, they're aware that, you know, there's a lot of people that don't take Cuba seriously, that don't take Cuba's achievements seriously or that have a very, very sort of um, straight-jacketed view of the country. So when there is someone who comes along that is at the very least open-minded about, about the country, in spite of how difficult the situation is there at the moment, you do really establish a very, very special, a very special bond that doesn't really leave. I'm a case in point. I've gone to Cuba four times. I could have gone to any other country in the world, but I keep going back there. Of course, I'm, I'm now sort of professionally invested in Cuba in terms of my research, but even before then, like, you know, it's, it's a place that always draws me back chiefly because of these, you know, these incredible relationships and the willingness of Cubans to share their very unique perspective and point of view. But on, you know, on the other side, as I was saying, it's, uh, it it was also quite a difficult time for me uh, because the situation there is really, really extreme at the moment in terms of inflation. Wages haven't been able to keep up with inflation. Prices have have increased dramatically now that they've legalised small, medium enterprises, things like that. So it's a really, really stressed economic situation at the moment to the point, you know, where there are some people I knew, um, even some of my younger friends, some families who were looking to migrate to Mexico or to Spain. And, you know, they, they were telling me it, it's really sad for them. And in fact, Margarita, that woman that I was staying with for half of my trip, had, had tears in her eyes when she was saying that her family wants to emigrate to Spain because she doesn't want to go. She said, I want to, I want to, I live here. I was born here. I love this country and I want to die here. But, but, you know, my grandchildren will be able to make more money in Spain than they will be in Cuba and they don't know when the situation will begin to get better because, of course, the aftershock of COVID, the blockade, all of these really complex international factors have meant that it's a really, really difficult time and people are having to make really difficult decisions. But, you know, as always, the, the majority of people, even those who, who want to leave, recognise, you know, they're like, you know, I would love to stay here, but the blockade doesn't really make that a viable sort of thing for the particular career path I want to pursue it's really quite sad and you could see that a lot more it's a lot more pronounced since COVID-19 but you know they are they're a nation of survivors it definitely isn't as bad as the special period of the 90s thankfully but I think it will be some time before the island fully recovers from you know the joint sort of calamity of COVID blockade inflation and all of these things that you know that aren't unique to Cuba they're happening around the world but of course Cuba has a few extra and unique challenges my final words I'll end on an optimistic note is that there there were also many people that were optimistic that they would get out of this situation soon everyone said you know you know it's really tough but we're survivors it is what it is we will just keep marching on we're not going to give up what we have. Even the people who said they wanted to leave, they would like, one day I would love to be able to come back when the situation is better. I have faith that, that Cuba will, will, get back on its, will get back on its feet and make a recovery. It's just a matter of, of when, because of all of these extenuating circumstances. And like I said, it's a condition that the entire world is now facing. And thankfully, you know, there are some things like rampant homelessness or violence insecurity, 
lack of access to basic services. These are things that Cubans don't have to worry about. The economic situation is another question, but all of these essential services, thankfully, are making sure that, you know, that Cuba is going to get through this. Thank you so much, Sasha. Not a problem. Thank you, Jen. And that was part two of an interview with Sasha Gillies Lakakis. And to find out more about Cuba and other Latin American countries, do listen to Latin American Update every Sunday morning here at 3CR at 10.30. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.